1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another amazing episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So if you've been here before, you probably have heard me talk about my work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. If this is your first time here, welcome. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we're a combination of facilitators and coaches, and we teach competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication. And we believe when you label those competencies as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we're really passionate about that is deeply personal to me is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you'll notice that we talk a lot about the power of curiosity and also the power of polarity. So if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I truly have been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far and this podcast. It means a ton when I hear from you that you're enjoying these conversations or that you've enjoyed reading the book. Lastly, if today's episode sticks with you, if it resonates with you, we really would appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. I can't tell you how much it helps us expand our reach. People find us through iTunes reviews, and it does impact who finds us and who continues to listen to these conversations. So thank you all for continuing to share these intentional performers with the world. Hopefully, it's making an impact to you and people in your network and in your community. Now to today's guest, So Todd Cashin is somebody who is in my community. He's based in the Washington, D.C. area where he is a professor of psychology at George Mason University. I actually reached out to Todd years ago because I had an assessment tool that I created, and he has a lab that does amazing work in developing assessment tools on things like courage and curiosity and resilience, and he really is a leading authority on well-being. At George Mason, they have an amazing well-being lab where I'm actually going to be a featured speaker shortly And I can't tell you how impressive they've been to work with and how impressed I am with how dedicated George Mason is to developing well-being on campus. And Todd has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles, and his work has been cited over 35,000 times. I've cited him. He is someone whose work I find to be really valuable and really meaningful. And he even received the Faculty Member of the Year Award from George Mason University. And he has been also uh, featured and recognized with the American Psychological Association. He's the author of Curious, which is a book that I've taken a deep dive into. If you know me, I'm deeply interested in curiosity, and certainly we talk about that in today's conversation, but he's also the author of the book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, which is an awesome read. I highly recommend it. And his latest book is The Art of Insubordination, which I got a quick glimpse into, a preview into, and I flew through the book. The book is all about how to dissent and defy effectively, which we cover in today's conversation as well. Look, Todd's writing has appeared in the Harvard Business Review, National Geographic, Fast Company, publications that you're probably reading on a regular basis, whether you realize it or not, Todd's work has been there. It's also, he's also been featured in media outlets such as The Atlantic, the New York Times, NPR, and Time Magazine. So his resume is really, really interesting and impressive, but we also go personal in this conversation and we go deep in this conversation about Todd's journey, who's impacted him and some of the most meaningful people in his life. He's a twin with twin daughters. We talk about that. And he's someone who really, really cares about speaking truth into this world. So I'm going to shut up now and you're going to get to learn from Todd. So let's fire it up. And here's my conversation with Todd Cashin. Todd, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Long been a fan of your work. We've emailed over the years. I've tried to share some things that I'm interested in. I've certainly followed your articles and read your work and just love it. Uh, Where I wanted to start today was with 12-year-old Todd. So there's a story in your new book where you are questioning a rabbi around tuna fish and shrimp. I'd love for you to start with that story because I think it'll set the tone for our conversation today.
0: Yeah, sure. This is uh, so thanks for having me. This is the first time I ever started talking about uh, me at 12 to start an interview. Um, so uh, I was raised by my grandmother who has reformed you, and my grandfather who was basically as strict as it comes. If I had to eat a bacon and egg sandwich, I actually had to walk around behind a gar- garbage compactor and hide myself, not just from my grandfather, but from my neighbors as well. So that was me growing up. And when I went to Hebrew school, uh, and this is, I found this is pretty common in my age cohort of men and women around age 40 is there were a lot of teachings that just made no sense to me. And one of them was that shellfish is forbidden by the Lord, uh, in terms of eating. And I was just like, like why, why would God care more about shrimp than he would care more about tilapia? And it's such a an acceptable question by anyone, much less by a 12-year-old. And I was told not to question the teachings of God. And it just, that moment stuck in my head among many other teachers who actually refused to answer questions of, huh, there's something behind the curtain. I learned this from watching The Wizard of Oz as a kid. There's something here. And then the skepticism started to sink in, the cynicism started to sink in. And then you realize that it's a little bit contagious, is that other kids, as a result of the rabbi refusing to answer my question, it had the exact diametrical effect of creating a safeguard around Judaism. And all the other kids were like, yeah, what other foods can't we eat? And and why would would God have rules knowing that new foods keep on arising? This is when Pringles became really popular. And we're like, Pringles weren't around 2000 years ago. And it just goes on and on. And so there's a lesson there, less about me, and more about if the goal is to keep someone on task for your teachings and your precepts of a religion, a doctrine, whether it's an anti-racism unit, whether it's a well-being unit in an organization, as soon as you make something taboo, you've just raised the stakes in terms of people exploring discovering and finding out that there are lots of holes in the arguments
1: we could we could have a whole conversation about religion and just keep going on that but i'm actually going to go in a different direction i want to talk about your mom because that story followed a quote from your mom which she said to you something to the effect of keep questioning the rules until you get good answers can you talk about mom and the impact she had on your life
0: Yes. Yeah, so my father walked out when I was two years old. So I was raised by a single mom in a predominantly black neighborhood. For those that are familiar with New York, this is on the edge of Uniondale and Hempstead. So it's even now, it's, it's over 90% black neighborhood. So it's, it's a little bit of the inverse. You have to code switch as someone white as opposed to being a person of color and have to code switch in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, And my mother, uh, bless her, was she worked jobs and I was a latchkey kid. By the age of nine, I was coming home from school and letting myself into the house. And she was really big of, you don't have a male role model to figure out how to be a man. And so she would set me up regularly with, she would screen characters in our cul-de-sac of an apartment complex of who's morally acceptable, who's morally problematic and lessons to learn by deconstructing what people did that were troublesome people, what people did that were virtuous people. And she always asked me to find your own path by asking questions with everybody. So really early in life, um, my mom really taught me of there are role models everywhere. You can ask anyone, anything. There are no dangerous questions to ask and you can discover in the most efficient way possible, how to navigate the complexities of the world by talking to people who have done poorly or have done effectively, even in a rough, tough neighborhood, such as you, know, you and Dale Hempstead in Hempstead in New York.
1: It's one of the things that's striking for me as I think of my childhood, which was very different from yours, is that my dinner table, we were taught to be convicted. Um, And I don't think it was a formal lesson, but confidence was something that my parents instilled in me and my brothers. We all were allowed to speak up and speak our mind. And so conviction is something that I am very comfortable in. Um, I can speak my mind. I can argue or debate. But one of the things that I've noticed about me as I've gotten older is that often when I'm convicted on something, I have strong belief in something that my curiosity tends to get lowered. And so you've written a book on curiosity and a book on insubordination. How does curiosity and conviction play? How does curiosity and insubordination play together? And and how might they actually get in the way of each other as well?
0: Oh, this is such a great question. You know, to be honest, I don't know how much I'm going to vocalize this elsewhere. Is This is the, this is the end of a trilogy of, cur- of the science of curiosity leading to the science that Negative emotions have value. That's why evolution granted us that over the past, you know, two and a half million years. And then here is how do we use all of these tools for positive, healthy causes to move society forward, to move our personal development forward? So this is, there's, there's all three linked together. I, mean, I I thought about this a great deal. You know, one quick motto that I'm holding on to is that the stronger our ideological convictions are, the less space there is to be curious. Mm. And so the more that we are, have attitudes with a great deal of certainty, attitudes that we feel really strongly about, just think about which political attitudes do people have the most strength and the most certainty? So you get into the abortion debate, which we don't have to dive into the details, but just to know that. Um, what's low in certainty and what's low in strength? Should we have a universal basic income for people? Should we take care of people that are the most economically disadvantaged? Um, In terms of the borders, in terms of allowing immigrants to come in, people are less certain because they have lots of caveats in terms of, well, should it depend on what they're going to do when they come here? Should it depend on their motivation when they come here? And there's a lesson here about curiosity because, and I don't want to dump too heavily on the media because it's almost a cliche at this point, is we're often forced to go into binary decisions, false binaries of, are you for immigration or against it? Are you for universal basic, basic income? Or are you against it? And if you're against universal basic income, that basically, seems, basically says something about you as a person. You're, you don't care about those who are impoverished. You have privilege. If you don't care about allowing people in immigration, you are xenophobic. That happens there. Everything that I just described, is force feeding people to make decisions about complicated, ambiguous issues and defining them by those issues and saying that in curiosity is the path to being morally accepted by me and the group that I ascribe to. Everything that's moving in the direction of political conversations is towards being more incurious and asking people to be incurious because curiosity makes you find flaws in people's arguments. And if you have attitude, certainty, and strength, the last thing you want is to show that, you know what, you don't have an absolute understanding of an issue because very few of us have that expertise.
1: I want to stay here because this is deeply personal for me and, and just how I see the world and how I think about things. And, you know, a potential growth edge that I've been working on. When I listed my, my values professionally as a coach, I actually came up with empathetic curiosity and I wanted to blend the two words. And part of the blending for me was that I'm not curious about how Zoom works or how this microphone works or how electricity functions. Like I'm not curious about everything, but I add the word empathetic curiosity. And for me, my curious, curiosity really lies with people. And when I'm curious about people, that is when I'm at my best. And so my that value for me is aspirational. I want to talk about values underpinning curiosity and conviction because I think values often drive behavior. However, the blending of values, using more than one word to me felt more spacious. It felt... It had more agility, more flexibility, which is a big word that we're going to get into today as well. But can you talk a little bit about what might underpin curiosity, what might underpin conviction and how you think about values?
0: Yeah, there's a lot there. First of all, um, I love what you're doing as opposed to treating strengths, values, and virtues as if they're these independent books that are sitting on a library shelf as human beings we have these huge profiles. And so the idea of starting to mix and match and kind of combine them together, it's, it's, it's a better way to describe ourselves to other people. It's a better way to actually think about, okay, with this first interaction in the first five minutes, how am I defining this person? And is this someone I wanna be around or someone I wanna avoid? It's really cool to take your approach and combine these things, right? So if you, th- if you think about being a kind person, well, is that going to include forgiveness? Is that going to include a sense of charity, a presumption of positivity before until proven otherwise? So I love where you're going with this. Um, in terms of the underpinnings of curiosity, this is really uh, going back to, it's our evolutionary birthright. I mean, we, we are curious because, and the reason we have three pound brains that are sitting on top of our heads, which is incredibly awkward in terms of coordination and balance. And I know you're interested in sports psychology. The reason that we have this is because we are trying to make a predictable, less uncertain environment as we walk through the world. So go back to my original story of being raised by a single mother with no dad in the picture. I have to make sense of what the difference is between my mom and all these men that I'm being exposed to with no actual model and framework of what makes a good man. How does a man behave differently? What is similar between men and women? What's different between men and women? And I'm not reading books on evolutionary psychology. I'm not reading books about emotional intelligence. I'm just actually observing, a keen observer of behavior. That curiosity is allowing me to make sense of of how to interact effectively with other people, how, what parts of myself should show, show up, and I should express myself in particular situations. So if I end up being sarcastic and playful like a typical New Yorker, well, when you're talking to an adult you never met before, you should lean towards respect, let them do the joking, let them be the playfulness, and then kind of get your feelers out for, is this someone that's sober and serious? That actually wants to tell me something or teach me something or is this someone that wants to have a good interaction but it's better for me to hang back and learn the patterns of which behavior is going to lead to the best possible outcome and the pathway of doing that is directly through being curious and brian your pathway of be adding empathetic curiosity is i want to explore the knowledge wisdom perspectives and resources and difficulties that and failures and successes that another person has had but i don't want to impinge on their well-being and withholding those two things as you walk through an interaction makes you such an amazing social interaction partner like just knowing that just you describing yourself like that makes it more likely to come to fruition and i think there's something really valuable about having precise language to describe ourselves as other people with as much complexities as needed to capture that person.
1: Yeah, I love the complexity and nuance. And I want to go to something a little more complex. So you mentioned dad leaving. You're also a twin. You're You're the dad of twins. How did dad leaving impact you? And I think it's your brother. I think you have a twin brother. And then how does it impact you as a dad having twins as well?
0: Yeah, good. I didn't realize this was going to be a therapy session. Yeah, we can free. go.
1: We can go to Doctor Phil here. <laughs>
0: um, well, you know, most of my interpretations of this are through the lens of my grandmother and through friends and through family, as opposed to me. So that being said, one of the things is it's made me incredibly independent and a critical thinker about the world. Um, that my secure base. Cause my mom passed away when I was 12 uh, and then my grandmother raised me and she, you know, she was in late in her seventies when she raised me. So without a secure base to come back to about, Hey, like I had this, I was rejected by this girl. Like I, I have no idea how to respond. I didn't have people to go to other than my friends, but even then it's a bunch of other, you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds who are just as clueless as I am. And when it comes to aspirationally thinking about, Hey, I'm really good at this thing, throwing the shot put is this something that I should pursue in college? Is is this a sport that's actually worthwhile in terms of the opportunity cost of not reading books, not socializing more? Um, I had nobody to go to because my grandmother was not up to speed on which Olympic sports to follow through and college scholarships for athletes to happen there. So not having a father forced me to have some of the qualities that I think other people can learn without the stress and the adversity that people like me who had a difficult family upbringing have to deal with. And that was kind of one of the, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was this was the book that I wish I had when I was 12 years old, 15 years old, 17 year olds trying to figure out the world about how do you communicate effectively when you're, you lack power, you lack a, number, a large number of friends that have your back, and you don't have the social status you know, you're, in terms of popularity, in terms of being the, the, at near the top of the hierarchy when you join an organization. You start off as an intern. You start off as an unpaid intern. Well, how can you, how can you produce a message to actually influence and change people's minds? Um, I had to learn the most inefficient way possible, which is trial and error. And this is what happens for those people listening who did not have a mother growing up or a father growing up or someone that was... Uh, that was present while they were growing up. You learn by trial and error, and you can learn, but it's incredibly inefficient. And so the idea of, you know, books and trainings and actually synthesizing what the body of science has to tell is let's do it more efficiently. Is that, for example, we know that the best way to effectively communicate if you are in the minority position, now that could be because of demographics, race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, that could be because of power. You're the unpaid intern working at a law firm. Um, that could be status, where you're you're in middle school and you're part of the, one of the nerds for, at the debate team, as opposed to one of the football, lacrosse, or field hockey players. And in those situations, the most effective way that we know, based on the, on research, is be incredibly consistent with your message. Is when you start to change your view and opinion on things because you're trying to get social acceptance. So when you're around really physically attractive people, you, say, you start to adopt their view and try to change what you're saying. And when you're around adults, you start to train your, change your view because you wanna sound smarter. And so you change, you change the way that you frame things. All of those makes your appeal less persuasive because it's, it's basically saying is that not only am I not gonna to listen to you because of your status power and lack of social support, but you won't even have the sufficient conviction that you actually can stick through it with a little bit of criticism and a little bit of people who are yawning and are bored when you're talking. All right, so Todd, consistency Todd, is key.
1: Todd, I want to jump in right there because now I'm, I'm really curious about this. Let's use politicians, for example. When they change their mind, they're labeled flip-floppers. But how do they know when to be convicted and stay with something and to say, you know what, I was actually wrong. And now I see something differently because I was curious. So it sounded like you were saying when we're doing it for just others acceptance or to be part of the group or be cool, or just for reasons that are not about the right thing to do, we can run into trouble. But we have to be able to know when to be convicted and when to stay with something and when to still be convicted and, and still be open to curiosity. How do we hold both of those at the same time?
0: Right. So taking, taking your idea of combining two phrases together, the real, the real aim is flexible consistency. Mm. And what that means is, where can you make small concessions? Now, where should those concessions be if you are a politician or anyone trying to change people's minds? There's basically two tests that you are being tested on as soon as you walk into a room to speak or virtually just imagine kind of you're appearing on Twitter or you know, Instagram or, or Facebook. So the first test is, are you a member of the group? Are you a good group member? And so when you're a politician, it's you have, you have to basically showcase that you have a track record, a behavioral track record that I am one of you guys, right? So there are, you know, you could list down all the legislation as a conservative that you actually supported in the past. You could list down the same thing if you end up being a liberal that happens there. Um, Whatever it is, you're, if you're if you're say you're from New York, when Andrew Yang ran for ran for governor of New York, he failed the you know the group the group member task. He wore a New York Yankee hat, and a bunch of people in the audience asked him, "Hey, who's your favorite Yankee player?" Wait, but what about ten years ago? He couldn't answer the questions, so he so he had the hat, which was the proxy of being a really good group member. But he basically showed, you're not really a New Yorker. Like, you don't know who Don Maddling is. You don't know who Reggie Jackson is. You've never been to actually Yankee Stadium. You haven't even been to Shea Stadium. So he failed. That's the first question. Are you a good member of the group? The second one is, is what you're going to say harm the viability of the group? So this is about, gets back to something you said before. People want to know in the audience, and it can be an audience of one just your best friend or just your romantic partner. Is this gonna spark more fear and threat than opportunity and intrigue? You wanna spark curiosity. So this is so the test is basically showing is that what I'm going to say to you as a good group member, this is what it's gonna to contribute to the health and longevity of the group. And if politicians followed those two paths in terms of am I a good group member is this going to increase the viability of the group? Then you would see more people describe them as someone that evolved as opposed to someone that's a flip-flopper.
1: There's, there, what's coming up for me is, combining them so I can have conviction in my curiosity, right? I I believe in X, Y, and Z. And I'm curious to get your view and your perspective in a genuine, authentic way. Because part of what you're talking about, Yang, is he lacked the authenticity in that community um, and then lacked trust. And you know, when I, I do speaking sometimes, I know you do a lot of speaking. When I get feedback, it's never, Brian was really polished. It's always like, yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. He was genuine, but not necessarily polished. And I've gone back and forth. I'm like, does polished matter for me? And I'm not a professional speaker. So I kind of go to, no, I think it's okay. And and so I, I go back to that idea of, instead of thinking of, is it conviction or curiosity? Perhaps it's I need to have conviction in my desire to do the right thing and have and believe in people and maintain that curiosity, even while I'm convicted. Because sometimes if I'm just convicted, I have blind spots. I'm only seeing one side of a story and I I lack the empathy to understand where someone's coming from.
0: Yeah, you know, I really like the term consistency over conviction because it shows us that the message is the same but I'm going to, I'm listening to what you have to say. I'm I'm adopting your criticisms. I'm taking them in and I'm responding to them regularly. But the message, the message hasn't changed. I'll give you a concrete example of this. Um, I have a next door neighbor. We've, you know, like many people of the past two years of COVID, my social interactions have involved a fire pit outside with a bunch of neighbors six feet apart. And my neighbor is a very ardent, Christian and I tend to, be, I tend to lean towards uh, atheism and being a, being a free thinker. And we've always, he loves talking about religion. So we talked about this regularly. And he is, we are on opposite ends of the abortion debate. And as we talked about this, he said, he said, here's, here's the thing. You see how many kids, he has? so he has six kids and he's happy to have as many kids as humanly possible because whatever God gives him is a blessing that happens there. He has all of his kids in his family, multiple times per year, go to orphanages. He gets all of clothing from from people within five mile radius in the community and brings it there, but he brings it there and asks them what else they need. Um, He's helping basically those kids in orphanages um, find good homes to go into. So I've always said to him this, you are so consistent, your everyday behavior and even how you teach your kids is so aligned with how you care about children in society, not just before they're born, but after they're born, I can never argue with you or disagree with you or other than support you for where you stand on this issue. It's because of that consistency that even though we we disagree, I have tremendous respect, value, and love for him as a person. And I think this this is where we get into problems is we find out where people stand and we don't collect information with that curiosity of to what degree is your everyday life tend to be aligned with that issue. And so that's where you find the holes where people are looking like, aha, you say you like it, but you hired an illegal immigrant. So clearly to, to be basically uh, you know, serve and clean your house. So you're actually pro-immigration, not anti-immigration but we're not listening to the big picture because we didn't ask them, well, what's the reason that you hired them? Because I met them through a friend. I trusted them. I heard about their family story. She's suffering from stage one cancer. She's trying to collect the money in case it gets worse. All of a sudden, the story is so much more nuanced that this, it's no longer one issue. And most things aren't one issue. And I think if we allow people the space to, to give a full interpretation of their motivations and multiple rationales for why they do the things they do and really have the assumption of positive intent until proven otherwise, we would have more civil discourse and less toxicity in society.
1: Yeah. I think the thing I struggle with is when are we proven otherwise? So, all right, I'm going to give someone curiosity. Let's use January 6th, the the capital, as an example, right? Like, for me, at least, um, I'm a Washingtonian, like you're a New Yorker. <laughs> um, and when I saw that going on, I was like, "I'm gonna go down there and defend my city um, and, and my country." I never served. I it was look. I I was at an age at when 9/11 happened. Also living in this city when the Pentagon hit, where I felt something similar. I felt something similar when the sniper um was was shooting random people in our in our area uh, in 2000 i think uh two that was and and so like i felt convicted to to go defend um in that moment i wasn't curious and so i think one of the things that a lot of humans struggle with is we do need people to be consistent with their beliefs and stand up what they believe in if they're going to be an insubordinate if they're going to change the world if they're going to disrupt the world they need to believe in that their idea, despite what society might be saying, and perhaps in those moments, curiosity won't serve them. And so I think a struggle for me is to figure out when am I going to use that confidence or that belief or that consistency of morals or values that I believe is good inside of me. And when do I actually lower the volume on that and just lean into, let me try to understand where this person is coming from. Cause there are evil people in this world. There are people that right. do bad things and, and, and I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of that, because if we don't acknowledge that bad things are happening, the genocides happen and and really awful atrocities can happen. So when do we sort of maybe go away from curiosity and, and stand up and and maybe do something that needs to be done in, the, in those situations?
0: That's a great setup. Uh, so think about it like an equalizer, which is already antiquated, because most most computers are, and right now at this point um don't even need to have one you've got f- at least four dials which is what it's an
1: equalizer todd <laughs> i don't even know what that is
0: well we could attach it to our tv or a stereo to get the exact right sound we're looking for some people have a you know some people have a preference for more bass kind of a loud kind of you know underpinning to the sound sometimes you want to kind of be a, a soft high pitch sound that comes in there so you kind of basically kind of alter a number of dimensions to get the sound quality that you like. Uh, TikTokers have figured this out. is that Some people love the sound of someone eating corn, and some people love the sound of someone rubbing their hands around a buttered, a buttered corn cob over and over again. Now they're one of these things to try to me, but there's a strange world out there. Everyone's got
1: their niche. Odds on TikTok, by the way. We'll give that plug right now because I am not on TikTok. But I saw you were on TikTok from your website, which I was... Amazed, I think your your daughters are having a good influence on you.
0: I and I am not chewing a corn cob to <laughs> attract people who have that who have that interest in that sound. So you have at least four dials. Curiosity is one, but let's not limit to curiosity. Curiosity, compassion, courage, intellectual humility, and just like you're saying, sometimes you have to dial a few down. That happens there. But so let's take January sixth last year of the insurrection as an example. What it, where is the place where curiosity is going to be activated? It's as simple as this. I'm seeing something by someone that is going completely against the value system and the norm of civil behavior as people are ransacking the Capitol, breaking windows, attacking police officers. Here's the question you would ask. Am I seeing something? that is useful and valuable for a healthy society that I don't know about. And it's not just why are they doing what they're doing, but I want to know the underpinnings. And if really quickly you ascertain which we have, that there is no good reason for this level of destructive behavior if you believe that an election is flawed, if you believe that a person that a particular leader should be in power. It's just not how a civil democracy operates. We have plenty of systems in place, checks and balances to make sure that's happened effectively. At that moment, you can basically imagine reducing the curiosity dial from 10 to around three, and then going towards, as you're describing, the courage dial. And despite whatever fear you're experiencing of wanting to go up to the Capitol and go protect those police officers, we're not really caring so much about the building, but the survival of the people that are putting themselves on the line every day, you've moved into a principled rebel role. It's not the rebel of trying to innovate and basically alter problematic social norms in society. It's to defend and protect those people that don't have the means to protect themselves. And so in defender mode, you're not really curious, you're basically in compassion about people. If you're talking about a public defender in the court system, you're talking about you running up to the Capitol and standing next to a police officer with whatever weapon or hands are at your side to kind of block block blunt instruments from hitting them. You're talking about seeing someone being catcalled on the street of DC or New York City and saying, hey, guy, what's the problem? Leave the lady alone. So there's no curiosity about why are you saying that? You're in defender mode. And that is a principled rebel that is not just for firefighters. It's not just for police officers. It's not just for people in the military on the front lines who are veterans. It's for every one of us to stand up to injustice. And that's exactly what we needed more of January 6th. And we're going to need it more. There's just basically, I mean, nobody is claiming right now We have a surplus of courage in society so we have so much good we should send people to get more graduate degrees we have a lack of courage if i said curiosity i meant courage we have we have a lack we have timidity we have people that are afraid to publicly express what they believe because they don't want mobs coming after them and this comes from every political angle possible it comes in the academy it comes in schools comes in sports psychology I was just telling my daughter who has a knee injury, I was saying is that there's a big controversy in sports psychology, which is that women are more likely to tear their ACL when they play soccer compared to boys. And there's a big rift about, is it really about, about women's bodies or are they being evaluated differently by radiologists and by you know, orthopedists that happen there? And this huge rift comes from a place of, We shouldn't treat men and women differently, but if women and men's bodies are differently physically and there's, it's easier for wear and tear in the ACL Well, to protect women athletes, we need to be doing something differently. We have to be able to speak our mind, even though we're getting into the the sex and gender debates here.
1: You mentioned the mob and you're on a college campus and you mentioned it, academia now, freedom of thought and expressing opinions, cancel culture, mobs. You're no stranger to that sort of stuff. How do you handle that when they come for you or they come after you in that regard?
0: Well, it's a, it's a complicated question. I'm, I actually don't use the word cancel culture. And the reason is that you know two days ago was the seven-year anniversary of Charlie Hebdo, where two Muslim assailants walked into this French satirical magazine office and beheaded the editor and killed 16 other people, including nine, I think it was nine or 10 other journalists. That was seven years ago. So the reason I bring that up is there is a cancer culture list online, and it's got the Michigan professor in the theater department who showed his students an Othello movie from the 60s, where basically you have a couple people that are, have um, their faces painted black in a black and white film. And he basically had his class canceled. He's suffering right now, um, mental health wise, and in terms of, and it's his entire career. And you've got a number of other people that sent uh, a tweet that was supposed to be funny about mask mandates. Um, they were attacked online. They've lost classes. Some of them have lost their jobs. In this list, someone beheaded seven years ago for simply drawing a cartoon of the prophet Muhammad is just one other line item. And so for me, it's really important to describe with great precision. I mean, I am a scientist of what exactly someone did and what exactly the consequences were and where is there a problem and where is actually there not a problem that happens there. And so I think this is a good strategy for dealing with each person on college campuses right now, which is before you pass judgment, there needs to be a pause in terms of what did the person actually do? Was there harm? And what was the intent of that person? And we have to assume, We, we can't hold these two things at the same time. We've got a message from Silicon Valley, which is really great, which is fail quick, fail often, let's innovate. And this has been taken over by education. And you've got you know, the whole work on growth mindset that starts with Carol Dweck and Carol Diener's, Carol Diener's dissertation as a student for Carol Dweck about if we believe that we will grow as a person from new experiences and new knowledge and from failing and making mistakes and trying things out. If we really believe that, and that is one of the most important self-help tools that are available to us to believe that your personality, your intelligence and creativity is not fixed, but it's malleable with experience. Then you can't also, if you believe that you can't also immediately tell people they should lose their job. They should be sent to courts. They should be imprisoned. Um, they should be kept. They should be suspended as a result of unintentional mistakes and slight impulsive behaviors that are on their part that did not impinge on the well-being of other people on purpose. So we have to be able to hold both these things at the same time. You can't say making mistakes is part in the process of being a flawed human being, and believing that you grow from mistakes, and then immediately trying to end people's work, life, family life and mental health as a, role, as a, as a function of small mistakes. That they didn't intend to make and they're very apologetic for and i think this is exactly this kind of nuance is what's going to help resolve um, the current climate where people are afraid to speak and too timid to say anything and so they're saying things they don't even believe just to make sure that they keep their job afloat that's not that's that gets in the way of educating people how to think and educating people to think about both sides of different issues
1: We're both located in the D.C. area, and I'm located right by NIH, and we're thinking about where we are currently. It's January 2022. We've seen an interesting sociological experiment when it comes to the vaccine. As a scientist, as someone who's in the lab researching human behavior, what did our government or or even our doctors get wrong about how they were communicating the vaccine to our uh, society, even a lot of the scientists have said we underestimated um, the dissent <laughs> that would take place when it comes to vaccine. As you're sitting back and you're observing this and you're noticing it, what are, what? are how, how do you think about that?
0: So many mistakes in terms of health communication that hopefully they're learning from. But as we just saw, they just made a mistake less than two weeks ago in terms of you had Some members of of the CDC say we should cut the quarantine down to five days. And the reason was not because of objective medical information about having a virus that's transmittable, but because there aren't enough workers available to fill all the places to get goods and services. Well, now you just, you moved away from objective medical knowledge, which is what we've been focusing on as the primary message of what we should do about COVID to capitalism is so important that we are going to, we're not going to explain why it's five days over 10 days, but just, we're going to give you just this one rationale, which is capitalism requires workers. And if we cut it in half, we can keep things running and the supply chain problems will be reduced. Well, what does that have to do with diseases? What does it have to do with physical health? What does it have to do with people with, you know, immunosuppression difficulties that happen there? So these kinds of messages where you mix, you mix domains and you take something that's supposed to be objective and you insert very clearly a subjective decision about what you value. I care about retail offices having enough people. Well, now all of a sudden, it's not a surprise that people are now move from skepticism to cynicism about what the government has to say about vaccines and about and about what people should do to not just improve their health, but help the health of their fellow citizens. Basically, you know, Brian's compassionate curiosity. And this happened previously. We should have learned our lesson. So simultaneously as COVID transmiss- transmissions were, um, you know, running amok in society, you had a bunch of people in the CDC say, as people were, you know, having uh, the moment of racial reckoning where people were going on the streets in large groups to defend the rights of marginalized communities, which is incredibly virtuous, valuable, you know, important. But you can't hold both these things at the same time. You can't say it's a good thing to have groups outside fighting for civil rights as COVID is running amok an incredibly transmissible, deadly disease. That raised skepticism and cynicism. We should have learned our lesson, and it appears to be we're not learning our lesson. Stay on task. Don't mix life domains in terms of civil rights and fighting for health and reducing mortality. And don't fight for capitalism and retail stores while you're trying to increase physical health and reduce mortality. And I think this is is just the simplest surface level communication problems that have occurred there.
1: I also think the difference between a flip-flopper and someone who changes their mind is also the ownership and the explanation. And to your point earlier, like we're all going to make mistakes. And the leaders that I like to follow are the ones that can look into the camera or look me in the eye and say, hey, here's why I screwed up. Here's what I've learned from my mistake. And here's what I believe now. And this is what I believe in. And this is why I believe in it. And I could be wrong. Um, does that does that resonate with you? Does that land with you? Because I'm still trying to really get clear on the flip-flopping versus someone who changes their mind, which is probably needed um, for all of us in society.
0: Yeah, the best way the best way to move away from the pejorative term of being called a flip flopper, and to move towards the virtuous act of constantly growing and evolving, is to be as objective as possible in doing a a a problem audit of where you made mistakes before. I love what you said. So just take the example I just used before because we're on that, right? So, and and I don't think there's, it's not even controversial. The idea that being in a group in close proximity to other people with or without masks increases the transmissibility of COVID-19 and saying, but we're gonna let, we're gonna give a get out of jail free card if you're fighting for racial justice or civil rights. That was a mistake. So if, if, if you had politicians involved with those decisions, and it was also epidemiologists as well, that actually said, it's okay, it's worth the cause. It would be great if they came out, as you said, in the months afterwards and said, you know what? We made a mistake. We mixed two areas together. Both things are important, but it was the, it's the wrong timing for civil rights marches to happen there. Um, we support those marches, but not at the time of, of the transmission. Um, we're going to make sure to stay focused on just the objective medical information. And any deviation from that will explain why medically it's it's relevant and it's acceptable. And we should we didn't do it in the past, our apologies. Then you're exactly right. You what you've done is you have shown a level of intellectual humility with your statements. And you have shown that you have actually made a mistake and learned from it. And As a function of that, you have, you, have, you have actually decreased the amount of uncertainty that I now have when I have to listen to news that comes from epidemiologists and politicians that make those kind of statements. And that's what people want. They want predictability. They want to reduce uncertainty. And so your job is to clarify how you, how you increase both in the past and you're going to be more predictable and reduce uncertainty, and things are going to be more morally morally sensible in your future statements.
1: We've talked about how humans make mistakes, and so if we think of resilience as the capacity to recover from adversity or mistakes and and grow, ideally, I love like a simple formula, and we're gonna we can talk about grit because I think it's an interesting word that gets used a lot in our world. But if you have grit, okay, passion and perseverance for long term goals. Angela Duckworth's definition. And then there's this other piece, which I think you talk a lot about in your books, which is agility and flexibility. And to me, it's like, okay, we need to know, we need to have the grit to stay the course to be, I'm going to use that word convicted again, to do hard things, but we also need to be flexible enough to pivot, to adjust, to look for possibilities, to remain curious. And then if we multiply that by this growth mindset that you mentioned earlier, um, that's where resilience typically comes from. Then we can really recover from adversity. But I think our society has often said, no, just persevere and have the passion. And just put your head down and keep going. And I think sometimes we miss the, the flexibility, the agility, the ability to actually pick your head up. You said earlier to pause, to say, hey, why am I doing this? What is there another way? Is there a more efficient way? Is there a better way? Who could I bring with me? Who could I maybe include in this? Can you talk about agility and how that might play a role in resilience and, and in well-being as well?
0: Yes. Yeah, so we use the term psychological flexibility. Uh, that's you know, it's it's a little bit different than the term agility because it's not just and, and it's the idea of that well, there's three there's three, there's three ways of thinking about psychological flexibility and why it's a nice Sidecart to grit or perseverance is so. One definition is the ability to pursue valued aims despite the presence of negative emotions, difficulties, errors, and mistakes that arise. I mean, this is just anyone learning anything. Right now, I'm in the middle of learning how to play pickleball for the first time because I've crossed the age of forty. So we move from tennis, we move from tennis and Greco-Roman wrestling and football to more less strainful sports. He says um, we.
1: He says we. So everybody in here is probably wrestling and and doing that as well. I'm sure. I'm sure everyone listening <laughs> yeah. and shot put, by the way, which you mentioned earlier. I'm sure everyone listening to this has done shot put. No people are moving from maybe Wednesday night basketball to pickleball. I think that's most of us, other folk, Todd. But you can you can keep going.
0: Maybe people are wearing the the onesie sniglet and, and maybe <laughs> skipping the wrestling part. Just That's just right. just the fashion just the fashion gear. That's
1: right. So wh-
0: So when you're doing this, uh, the sheer the sheer difficulty of being the white belt, of knowing nothing, of having an eighty year old man beat you who basically could be in a wheelchair because you're learning new sport. It's there's so many negative emotions that arise, right? In terms of jealousy and envy and fear and disappointment, um, a sense of grief that you no longer have the physical body, the L3 to L5 and your spine that you actually can wrestle. All of these negative emotions arise. And psychological flexibility is the ability to either, one of two things, accept those negative emotions and keep working at whatever it is you're doing and enjoy playing. And one step further is harnessing those negative emotions and using them as fuel to get even better. And one what of what the emotions that I use for in my own life that I harness extremely well is envy. And so you were mentioning before about, you know is, how important is it to be polished or, or just impromptu when you're doing public speaking. I, I myself, I think like you, have a real envy for people that can speak for an hour and a half with no verbal graffiti, no pauses, they can you know, memorize as many studies, memorize seven different authors of each study, which year they came out, and just, just pop this out in the middle of a talk. And it'll sound as if this is perfectly memorized, but it's just the power of their, their memory has such greater cognitive capacity than my own. When I have this level of envy and I feel this uncomfortable feeling of like, oh my God, they're so much better than me, I harness this as fuel of like, Okay, let me actually watch that again. Let me reverse engineer. When they first brought up that study, I want to see, did it look, what did they do to transition, to buy themselves time to remember it? What did they do to flesh it out in a way so they could actually remember more and more details and then turn it into an interesting narrative that happens there? So I'm, I'm harnessing the negative, uncomfortable experience of envy to actually improve my own skills and my own strength as a public speaker. And I do this all the time. I do it with pickleball. Um, I do it when people tell jokes. Um, I do it when I watch someone shovel snow and actually see how their back is in perfect position. I'm um, reverse engineering how they physically move. And so this is psychological flexibility as you're harnessing your negative emotions in the pursuit of your valued aim. And another way of thinking about psychological flexibility, why it's so important as to evolve as a person and change your views over time is when you move from one social role to another, how do you handle those transitions? And so you know, many of us who work outside of the home and have a family or even roommates that are actually living with us, when you come out of the office, there's something you have to do psychologically to switch from being, from being a leader or being a worker, or whatever is your profession, you know, from surfers to editors to architects, and then coming into the person that's just friends with the people that you're living with, a parent of the people, of the little people that you're taking care of, or a partner of the people you, that you're in a romantic relationship with, you have to switch roles. And so there's something to be said about psychological flexibility, which is to bring closure to the story of what happened in the workplace to take that pause and think about how do I want to enter into the situation to get the best possible outcome of what, of what I hope to get and how I want to be. Not what I'm expecting from other people, but how do I want to be? Do I want to be compassionate? Do I want to be a good listener? Do I want to ask questions about how their day went to happen there? Go in with that intention before you open that door that psychological flexibility as well is transitions between our different life roles, as opposed to letting those life roles merge so tightly together that we feel as if we're not on top of being a parent. We're not on top of being a worker. We're not on top of being a lover. We're not on top of being, you know, a son or daughter we're mixing all this together and we're just walking around burdened, stressed and burnt out.
1: It's so good. Anyone who's been around psychologists, the old adage is that psychologists I don't always make the greatest parents, which is counterintuitive, but I, I think when people work with other humans and try to help other humans, they need those transitions because your kid doesn't want a psychologist, they want a mom, they want a dad, your your spouse doesn't want a psychologist, they want a husband, a wife, or what have you, and for me, I can relate so clearly to this because I used to have an office. So I would go to my office and I, I got my office once our first was born. And so he was born. I go, I can't work from home anymore. So I got an office. It was as close to my house as possible. And I'd walk through the door. And then we had our second kid and I'd walk through the door and my kids would come running up to me and say, daddy's home, daddy's home. And for me, that was a transition. They're literally calling me daddy. You know, it's not Brian. It's not coach. It's not anything like that. It's daddy. And I'd like to think I did an okay job at doing that job. Uh, I still got a long way to go, which we're going to get to in a minute here. Um, When the pandemic hit, I started working from home. I actually got rid of my office. Now I work on the third floor of my house. So I walked down the stairs and my kids, I'd walk down the stairs and there was nothing. And I would just... Transition, and so I actually coached my kids, which I don't always do. But I was like, guys, when I walk down the stairs, can you give me a daddy's home and run up to me? This is selfish on my part, but it also helped me transition. So now when I walk down the stairs, they come and run up to me and say, "Daddy's home," and they give me a hug. And honestly, it's a good reminder. I I almost like take a breath out. And just, I'm like, all right, let's be present. Let's be there for them as best I can. But I also will admit like one of the challenges I've had, which we were talking about before we hit the record button is my daughter, um, who, if she's listening to this down the road, you are an incredible human (laughs) and you're gonna do amazing things in this world. And (laughs) you, your, your favorite word is often no, and she's very defiant and she is absolutely a dissenter. And, we, my wife and I have been aware of like, there are some qualities in here that is going to make her a badass woman. And she is going to change the world and disrupt the world in such a beautiful, amazing way. But at five, when we want you to go to bed, you're not helping us out. What do you say? No, when it's time to eat your dinner and you're saying no, and it's time to go somewhere and you're taking forever. Like it makes things challenging as a parent. So can you talk about raising kids and how we can Make sure that we don't necessarily squelch those dark sides, so to speak, those emotions that might make it harder to parent them. But that might help them in the future become a great leader or a great performer or just a great human in our society to make a positive impact. Talk about parenting and and what you've witnessed and how you think about that.
0: Yeah, um, thank you. This is definitely one of my favorite topics, raising three daughters, um, twin, 15-year-olds in a few weeks, and then my nine-year-old. Um, I just wanna go back and and uh, bold and italicize. I love what you described about asking your kids to help you with the transition of going into daddy mode so you can kind of forget work. I love it. I'm actually gonna copy you when I get off this when I get off this
1: call. Well, Todd um, it was also always the honestly, I love my work. Like I'm really fortunate. I I will probably be coaching people for the rest of my life. Like I, it's, it's truly a a passion, which I know a lot of people don't have that luxury and have to work. Um, So I don't take that lightly, but regardless of how great my day was walking through that door and having my kids run up to me would give me chills. It'd make me feel alive. And so it it could be a good day, a bad day, a good moments, bad moments. There's all kinds of different things that happen, but consistently for me, when I would come through that door, and have that right hear the steps pitter pattering, and I would just hear it coming around the corner. <laughs> and then, oh man, like anyone who's ever had that experience with kids, it is such a special feeling. And I know maybe at 15, <laughs> they won't do it. You'll tell me how it goes. But um, yeah, I think they're at an age now which is spectacular because they're little people and they're curious and they're learning about the world, but they also can emote and make you feel a certain way. Um, and I want that connection with them. Um, so it, yeah, it's it's a it's been amazing. <laughs> and, and, and I had to trade them. I had to walk them up the stairs. All right, when well, I'm here, and then now they like meet me halfway. Sometimes they come up if I'm running late, um, which is fine. But yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> spectacular.
0: No, uh, it's very clear you have a very strong, deep connection with your kids that they actually want you to be around, which is. Um, something you start to lose ever so slightly, <laughs> fifteen, sixteen, seventy. I can I can actually see it happening here. Um, well, there's there's well. I also I also want I also want to emphasize um, before I I get to your question of you really hit something hard about the pandemic and because there's there's no end in sight of people working from home and doing this remote work, which is the the importance of that second definition of psychological flexibility of dealing with the emotions of trying to transition from one social role to the next has become more difficult. And no one's, there hasn't been much conversation about this in terms of, you know, the burnout and the great resignation where a lot of people are leaving their jobs for something that they believe is going to be more meaningful. Although I'm always reminded of John cabot's zens book, um, Wherever You Go, There You Are, which is you have to really think less about the job and think more about What is it about you that made you want to do that job in the first place? And what are you going to learn and do differently so it don't replicate it in whatever the next job is? Um, We have this with 9-11 where in the, in the aftermath of 9-11, one people that one way that people extracted meaning from their lives was people left wall street. They stopped becoming financial traders and they went, became teachers and social workers. And then six months later, there was, a mini resignation where people went back to working on wall street and realizing, Oh, I miss, I miss the action. I miss the frenzy. I miss the people. I miss being able to say whatever I want. I miss this. I miss the lack of structure. And there was a big drop in teachers and social workers. And I expect the same thing to be happening in the pandemic. Um, people, I want people to really listen to what you said and think of what is this, what is a Levinson strategy that I can add to my own life? where I give myself at least at the minimum, a few minutes of transition before I go into the other role. And if it is, if it is, if you do have kids in the household, this isn't just for parents though. um, Is there a way when you turn off the zoom camera, when you shut down your laptop, is there some contemplative practice you can engage in of breathing and thinking about what do I intend to bring out of my personality? What sides of my personality do I want to be dominant when I open that door and I go see those little characters that goes in there? Because you, if you're a leader, you're talking about dominance. You're talking about your words have extra power in influencing um, people's behavior. You, know, you can harm people and you can kind of please people in a great depth. And when you go into, when you go into parent mode, you're talking about is that they are much more delicate in terms of there's no, there's very few have to's over the course of a day when you're interacting with kids which is going to get to the answer to your question And we have to really think about what are the things that are negotiable what are the things that i want to change and what are the non-negotiables and this is this gets to kind of raising principled rebels where all of those behaviors that you're describing with your daughter, and you know, there's, you know, there's so many kids out there where they're rambunctious, they have lots of energy. They, it's not that they distrust authority, they just despise authority because you have all these big people. It's like a Peanuts cartoon where the teachers are saying, wah, 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 and you don't even know what they're saying, but the kids are already tuning out because an adult who they can't even see their head, they have to look up, is constantly spilling out precepts and rules and laws that they have to obey and comply with. And if, if that becomes their default of how they see big people, it makes perfect sense that the, they're going to lean on this word no, which has a tremendous amount of power. And so it's really important to create these three columns in your head, have a very small list of non-negotiables. For example, in my household, Um, after several years of kind of just figuring it, figuring things out trial by error, is I only made a couple rules in the house. These are two of the biggest ones. One, you can never, remember I have 15 year olds, hopefully they're listening to this. You can never reject or say anything negative outside of this house towards your siblings. You cannot infect their social status, their social relationships, their social standing, and their ability to function outside of this house. If you do that, it's it's basically, you know, bring out the Kraken, like everything everything is possible in terms of punishments, um, in terms of it is, you have to show respect for them on the outside world. Now, once you get home, have all the sibling arguments you want, like it doesn't matter, but as soon as you make it public and you try to, to win the favor of other people against your sibling, totally unacceptable.
1: Second, why was that, why was that so important for you to establish
0: is they're trying to figure out their identity and part of your identity is you behave differently when you walk out of your house and you have a there's a little bit of a performance irving goffman talks about this you could think about life as a dramatic performance when you're home you let your hair down you take off your makeup and you can be exactly raw edgy, who you are, not worrying about how you come across. And it's very complicated in the adolescent years to figure out who am I when I'm interacting with one person? Who am I I when I'm interacting with adults? Who am I when I'm interacting with someone of the opposite sex? Who am I when I'm interacting with a large group? Who am I when i interact with a large group of people that I believe are more socially attractive or higher in status than me? And Those different situations, we call them in psychology, strong situations. They pull out different parts of us that they're all us. But there is an us when we're in mating mode. There's an us when we're in friendship acquisition mode. There's us when we're seeking safety and trying to defend ourselves from threats mode. There's us when we're seeking out opportunities and we're exploring potential rewards. There's a mode there. There's us when we're seeking generativity. We're trying to help other people. And when those different selves are activated, and you're an adolescent, you are still learning of like, who is this person in mating mode? Who is this person in seeking friends mode, maintaining friends mode? And so as soon as one of their one of your siblings attacks you in front of other people, you're bringing the home life off stage, and it's infecting what their identity becomes. And I want their identity to be independent of their sibling rivalries, and their sibling difficulties.
1: And there was a number two rule. What was the number two rule? Uh, Yeah, so the number two rule is maybe
0: people can identify more strongly with, which is in the household, uh, when you walk out of a room, there should be be zero influence that you were there. So it's just a very simple rule, zero impact. That's how it is like describing the house. So leaving plates, not putting in the dishwasher, that's the, that's the opposite of zero impact. Uh, leaving things in the hallway that I could trip over, that's the opposite of zero impact. Um, having uh, had Baking cookies and then kind of uh, taking over the whole kitchen without seeing what, what anyone else is going to do over the next two hours, that's not having zero impact. So as opposed to saying, clean up your clothes, take your stuff out of the laundry, put your stuff in the laundry put your dishes in the dishwasher, um, walk the dog. I just, I just talked about zero impact and everyone in the household knows about that. It's, it's a very, so in that rule of non-negotiables, there's only a few things. And so even a kid of age nine, eight, seven can understand that and attend to it. If I see a plate lying around, I just text one of my kids, zero impact, kitchen. And they know exactly what to do. That happens there. And once you add up that list too long about the non-negotiables, kids basically view it as adults ask too much. I'm going to say no, because I want to assert my independence and autonomy. And it makes perfect sense when you take the perspective of a kid. It is a power grab and it almost always works. At the minimum, it's going to get Brian upset. It's going to get Todd upset at the minimum. At the best, you actually get people to do what you want. And so, when, when you lack empowerment, uh, you go for the nuclear option as much as humanly possible. And that gets the intervention. How can we empower our kids to have more tools at their disposal beyond just the word of no? And this is, this is where we, uh, we can really play with in terms of offering opportunities for them to be the leader in deciding what they do with their time as often as possible or s- scheduling that in. Sunday, you let me know, you list out what you want to do, and I promise you we'll pick something out of those top five that's on your list of habits there. They're in control as opposed to, listen, we're going to go see grandma and grandpa today. And you hear that enough times, you feel as if, okay, I still have the nuclear option anytime I want to. I can say no, and I know people are going to have to revolve around me.
1: You sound like the psychologist that we talked to. <laughs> um, but. Uh, <laughs> Look, you're a twin. You have twins. I'm always curious to get twins' perspective on nature and nurture. What, what's your what's your general perspective on nature and nurture?
0: Well, it's not my perspective. It's it's a, a review of the literature is really interesting. So let me let me sh- sh- shock you guys with a, you know, with a couple of interesting dogs. For example, um, the genetic contribution to your political affiliation and your political views is about exactly the same as the genetic contribution to being an agreeable person and someone that's open-minded, someone that's highly neurotic, someone that's, someone that's extroverted. It's about 40% of the contribution in a group to someone being liberal or conservative is due to genetics that happens there. Now, here's, here are some things that have, Um, very little contribution by what's called the non-shared environment. And the non, so there's three things that contribute to nature and nurture. There's the genetic contribution, there's shared environment, and there's non-shared environment. And we know most of this from, from twin studies, essentially is when you take twins that are monozygotic or identical twins, you compare them to dizygotic, like my kids, are fraternal twins. I'm a fraternal twin as well, which means we don't look alike. So we only have 50% of our genes in common. And what you find is is that when you look at happiness, or you look at uh, life longevity, or you look at even uh, um, the likelihood you're going to have cavities, the likelihood that you're going to have misshapen teeth, um, the likelihood you're going to brush your teeth, you find that the genetic contribution tends to be far higher than it is for the non-shared environment or the parents treating kids as individuals and treating them with different ideas, different conversations, um, different, you know, different car trips, different experiences together. That contribution is quite small for most of the behaviors that we care about. Your kid's values, your kid's intelligence your kid's happiness, and your kid's values. Um, very small contribution of what parents say and do individual, to individualize their actions with each one of their kids.
1: Awesome. Look, Todd, we, we could chat forever. And there's a reason. I reached out to you years ago because I had this assessment tool that I was creating and you have a lab that does amazing work. And you have tons of assessments that you can actually get. If you go to Todd's website, you can download um, all kinds of different assessment tools that might help you gain self-awareness or you can use to help develop yourself or the people around you. Um, Where I wanted to close though was, I love reading the acknowledgement section of books. Um, To me, it goes to probably that empathetic curiosity. I wanna know who helped this person get to where they're at. And one of the acknowledgements in your latest book is around Barry. Uh, who you labeled, I think, a second parent who recently died of COVID. Can you talk about Barry and the impact that Barry had on your life?
0: Yes. Yeah, so um, I got married 21 years ago um, and without a dad. So I've known Barry for 20 years before he died of COVID. And uh, he's, you know, they're, they're, they're horrible dads that are abusive and neglectful, There are bad dads that are just kind of, too intrusive and intensive in approaching their kids lives There are okay dads good dads and then there are these icons and barry was an icon he, he when he, when we had his zoom memorial i think two over 200 people showed up on that zoom call the call that was led by um uh his son was over two and a half hours long everybody over 200 people stayed on for two and a half hours listening to people tell stories about Barry. I mean, there was, there was one guy from his elementary school. I mean, this is a guy, you know, 75 years old. Um, some guy came on who went to elementary school with him. He was telling about a story it was that um, when he was in sixth grade that Barry was attracted to this girl. And he didn't know how to win her because he, he didn't view himself as that physically attractive. And so he thought maybe sports was the ticket to winning the girl. And he basically paid all the other guys on the basketball team in sixth grade to get the ball and then he would sit right by the basket and then they'd throw it to him and then he would score points and he got like you know (laughs) I think he got like 28 points during the game he did absolutely nothing no defense whatsoever and then you know it was all kind of to impress this one girl I mean this is he was just he was a character I mean just people loved him he like he um you know took his kids to Africa took like uh, refinanced his house about six times, all for the sake of having really cool experiences with his family and going on camping trips and um, going to Australia. And uh, yeah, I mean, he he basically taught me about not treating anyone younger than you as if they are little people, but they are big people with big minds. And when he would hang out with my my kids, his grandkids, um, he would sit there and play video games with him on an iPhone in his 70s, and he didn't treat them as if they couldn't learn the rules of complicated role-playing games. Uh, he talked to them like he would talk to me, and uh, it's something that I really held on to, which was assume everyone is incredibly intelligent, and that includes young kids. And so young kids flocked to him because he was so funny and so playful, and he treated them as equals. And there's and there's something about that that beautiful nature of walking through the world treating everyone that's different from you as they are your as they are your equal Um, especially kids that is such a great way to approach kids grandkids and you know just little ones that live in your neighborhood and I've I've really adopted that it's like when I talk to kids I don't ask them how school was I, I I'll talk to them about whatever I was just reading in the newspaper or whatever tv show or documentary I was just watching and then they almost always have some bizarre questions and contributions that makes me think about it differently because, you know, these are kids that are like nine years old or 11 years old. And I'm watching a documentary about the, um, the satanic witch hunt, where the assumption in the eighties, where people thought that there was satanic rituals in daycare centers. And I would talk about this. I was like, Hey, I was just reading this book. I'm like, do you ever think that maybe, um, you know, there are Satan worshipers that are in your, daycare. And they'll be like, what's who's Satan. And then I'll mention what Satan is. And I was like, like, is Satan God? I'm like, no. And then I'll talk about that. And and then we'll just go on and on. And it is such fun conversations. If you just allow kids to allow kids entry into your mental world of what you're cogitating about.
1: I I, I was going to finish, but there's one piece that I'm curious about, which is Earlier, you said hey, we're born with curiosity. If you've been around a three-year-old, a five-year-old, even nine and eleven-year-old, like they have curiosity, and yet a lot of our systems are set up to know the answers to things. You take a test; you're supposed to know the answers. If you don't get them right, we move on to the next one. You get your grade. You know, keep going. What can we do as a society to um, embrace curiosity? To um, encourage our adults, or our leaders, or our employees to go toward it. What do we need to be doing to increase the curiosity to the levels that maybe a lot of us had it when we were younger?
0: That's a a whole hour. So let me <laughs> offer one. We and can I doing over a
1: fire pit in a chair. In a yeah. <laughs>
0: yes, yes. Um, let me, off, let me offer one suggestion of many in my head. Uh, mental simulations of alternative possibilities is an incredible way to increase curiosity in the classroom, for athletic trainers, in the workplace, trainings about diversity, equity, inclusion, trainings about well-being. And I'll give you an example of this. You know, I can meet with my. I run the well-being lab at George Mason University, and when I meet with my research team, sometimes I'll ask the question, "How would we do this differently if we only had two weeks?" Um, if I'm working, if I'm working with my co-author, working on my next book, I might say, "If we find out that three other people wrote a book on the same topic, how is there a place for us to write this book?" And so, without even without even looking, or we might say, you know. Um, Let's assume that all of our readers are going to, are going to have no, no greater education than eighth grade. How can we communicate the story? How can we communicate the scientific study? So just by posing these mental simulations of alternative realities allows us to think um, with a level of curiosity of, there's not one way to do something. There's not one answer. There's a lot of questions to be asked and there's a lot of possibility to be contemplating. And you're exactly right, as soon as we assume that there is one answer that everyone has to abide by, uh, we have ended curiosity and we've also, we have also ended, and this is, more, this, is, this is a great thing for me to end on, we've ended people's ability to express their true thoughts about a topic because you've basically implicitly said is that I want you to be disingenuous and follow my lead, say this is the answer, repeat it build it into your dna and don't and don't alter it don't change it and don't express don't express disagreement with what i'm saying everything about that is antithetical to winning people over to your side and i think a lot of social movements right now are doing right that doing exactly that which is they're forcing compliance where people people publicly say the right things and then behind the scenes people are meeting in small groups and saying that was horseshit like like what do you really think and then people are having the real conversations and what I would say is try to create groups whether it's classrooms workplaces in the home with your friends anywhere where people are able to speak because you're open you're open-minded and curious they're able to speak what they actually think because you're willing to work with the material
1: that's a beautiful place for us to close. Todd, if people want to learn more about the art of insubordination or uh, the upside of my dark side or curiosity, or I mean, Todd's got on his website, so I'll just give his website's toddcashton.com. He's got articles in Harvard Business Review. He, he's been featured in a bunch of different places and it's really good stuff. Like your writing is is very digestible. It is packed well, I love what you said earlier and I asked you about nature and nurture. You're like, well, it's not my perspective. Let's look at the research. It's packed with research. It's also packed with great storytelling, but Todd, I know you're also on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, which I'm a little curious about, not a whole lot of curious about, um, but like where can people find you? Let's just give those things a megaphone to, to share with the world. Uh,
0: yeah. I mean, the best thing to do is on my website, you could sign up for my free newsletter provoked uh, and it's you know thank you Brian for the the plug i really do try to describe my my mission is to educate public about the science in ways that's interesting and fun and practical i mean that's that's why i write books that's why i write provoke my newsletter um but yeah i'm on twitter my name todd kashin instagram my name todd Cashin, tiktok my name todd kashin uh linkedin and uh you know if if you pick up the book and you read it, I'd love to hear what you think. I've worked 10 years on this, and this is, this is, this is the first book that has my voice in there. And it's again, it's uh, as someone who was raised by a single mom who passed away early. This was, this was my tribute for those that did not learn the lessons of how to break free from conformity and complacency and be their own person and live life their own way.
1: And I appreciate you also sharing how to pronounce your name because I've been saying cashed in the whole time and it sounds like Cashin. Um, But I think I'll get that right. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn's the other place I like to play, Brian Levinson there. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Todd also has a quiz you can take on the website. Uh, which we can talk about another day. It, it was a tough quiz for me to fill out, but I was an innovator, if, if you're curious. And um, you know, I, I just think Todd is a great resource for anybody looking to grow and learn and develop themselves or their team or their people. I know he also does some talking and speaking for organizations as well. So Todd, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a long time coming. Really excited to share your book with the world. And I know people are gonna get a lot out of it. So thanks for all that you continue to do for our society.
0: Long-form conversations with you are really stimulating. If I had known this, we would have had this podcast years ago. Thanks, Brian. I got
1: to do a better sales job next time. Take care, (laughs) Todd.
0: Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. If we believe that we will grow as a person from new experiences and new knowledge and from failing and making mistakes and trying things out, if we really believe that and that is one of the most important self-help tools that are available to us the belief that your personality your intelligence and creativity is not fixed but it's malleable with experience then you can't also if you believe that you can't also immediately tell people they should lose their job they should be sent to courts they should be imprisoned um they should be kept they should be suspended as a result of unintentional mistakes and slight impulsive behaviors that are on their part that did not impinge on the well-being of other people on purpose.